Rohan. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all. And in the darkness, fight them. Welcome to week three of the Readers of Rohan. My Gavanin friends. Hello, Gavanavin. My name is Jen. I also go by Darth Cleavage. My name is Shane of the Woodland Realm. And I'm Russell, here from the Shire. I can't remember Elvish to save my life. <laughs> I can all remember the first weeks. <laughs> <laughs> we were actually saying before we got started that when we're reading and things that we've heard in other podcasts is that when you're reading this, you tend to get really immersed in the names and trying to remember everybody and everything. And that's just not the way to go. Yeah. I think like 90% of reading uh, this stuff successfully is just trying to figure out like which two or three people you should be paying attention to. And then just kind of, you know, glancing over the rest or else you get bogged down. Thankfully with this reading too, we got a lot of repeat names and and names that we were familiar with from the more popular aspects of the uh exactly. yeah so uh so this week we read um of the rings of power and letter 131 to milton waldman which was surprisingly interesting yeah the letter was great i mean i guess it sh- i shouldn't be surprised because he's a fantastic writer i just thought it was going to be a little more like you know please, please, please publish my work as opposed to what we actually got. <laughs> yeah. I I wonder if it's in letters of Tolkien uh, or, you know, kind of what, what the impetus was for, for this letter. Cause it almost sounds like Milton Freeman was asking, you know, for a little bit of background story on where, where his whole idea from the legendarium came from and how much of it was embedded in Greek and, and Roman mythologies and, and other mythologies uh, for that matter. Cause he mentions Norse and, and some of the other ones. So uh, it also struck me with that letter, like nobody writes like that anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I just can't imagine opening up like a 15 page letter from somebody that was mailed to me. Um, especially <laughs> written <laughs> letters. Like... Right. I don't even think uh, people like kids now can write. I think they're just, they just teach them how to type and text and they're good. One of my favorite stories is, okay, listeners, we're going to give you a a little uh, sneak peek behind the curtains. Um, I sell textbooks for a living (laughs) and I was at a conference uh, one time and I had a person come up to me and ask me if we had any of our curriculum that was fantasy themed because they were opening up a Harry Potter themed charter school. Huh. Somewhere in Atlanta. (laughs) Well, it was actually, it was in Florida at my daughter's school. They sort everybody into houses. So like, you know, depending on which classroom you're in, you know, depends on like what house you would be. And they do like the whole 10 points Gryffindor, but it's not Gryffindor. They use like different names. Oh. So. Interesting. Man, I don't remember anything like that when I was younger. Yeah, we'd never do anything that cool. Although my first exposure to 
the Lord of the Rings was in sixth grade reading class. It was right when the movies were coming out. And for our reading, um, the teacher decided that we would start reading the Lord of the Rings. And I specifically asked her about more information because she was a whole Tolkien nerd. And I was like, but we want, I want to find out more about the elves. And she said, you need to check out the Silmarillion. And that's when I got that copy that I showed you guys last week. Okay, I'm going to stop well, you right there. Uh, just wait a fucking second. <laughs> you were in sixth grade when the movies came out? Yeah. Oh, shit. I didn't even... I was thinking the cartoon because that was my introduction was in the the GATE program, which is our gifted and talented program, which I only got in like the year that they stopped doing the tested because I was talented, but not like gifted in all of the areas and you had to be all of them. Anyway... Um, so it's not really that cool that I was even gifted and talented, but anyway, I, I did get a lot out of it. And a lot of it was because of that exploration and research, but that was my introduction is that they, we, every year somebody picked, everybody picked a topic and spent the year researching it. And then you had to do a presentation at the end of the year and someone did the Hobbit and we watched the cartoon and I was like, Oh God, I got to read this. And that's how I got it. Except well, my mom said I was special. Not. <laughs> You're special not to the us. Movies. <laughs> Welcome to our education podcast. <laughs> All right. So our general intro to the podcast, for those of you who are tuning in, is tuning in for the first time, is we're covering the second age right now um, and doing the read-alongs that are from Reddit. So each week has a before you read and after you read and then discussion questions and we have maps and images and genealogies and pretty much anything you could want possibly to help you understand what's going on in the series. Um, and we have a Facebook page and a Facebook group that you can join and we can give you all that information if you're interested or you can just go to Reddit and get it. And we are also on Instagram and Twitter where we just share kind of content and post when our um, podcasts are up and ready to go and try to find things that are topical to that. Um, like this week, I've been doing the different sections from the film of One Ring to Rule Them All as we're getting ready to talk about the Rings of Power. Um, and we are now on, I've lost track. Clearly, if you're listening to this, you found us, but we're on just about every podcast network out there now, so... You should be able to find us someplace, somewhere, sometime. Nice. On all the things. All the things. And all the social medias are a good way to ask questions and propose, yes. propose questions to us and get in touch Wait. with us. Love to hear your feedback. And if we get more than 10 subscribers, we will do a, gi a giveaway. There you go. Free things. <laughs> Everybody likes free stuff. So, this week. So, what you guys think about that reading? Um, I loved it. I, this is the most... So, the last two weeks have been fun, but this week was like, oh, shit, yeah, I know this all week this was great. stuff. Well, I thought, I thought, especially both of them, it was kind of almost a review of what we have read. It did seem like it was a little bit more concise, and at the same time, especially with the Milton Friedman letter, um, it actually maybe provide a little bit greater context of his frame of mind and how he got to it. So I think it definitely added a little bit to it. Yeah. And, you know, basically the, uh, the, of the rings of power and the, the letter from Milton or the letter uh, to Milton Waldman, it was basically uh, 
like an in-depth version of the 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 prologue from mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings, like from the movies, exactly. where it's just you know talking about uh, the creation of the rings and everything. It's just really really interesting to me. So. My bad. I think I said Milton Freeman a second ago. <laughs> the the famous economist who also. <laughs> no. hey, the fact that you know that Milton Freeman is an economist is. So we're going to, we, we read the letter from uh, <laughs> Tolkien to Milton Berle. <laughs> <laughs> Narrated Milton, by Morgan Freeman. There we to go. Milton Bradley. <laughs> <laughs> they made the, uh, the tabletop game of it. Yeah. <laughs> So at some point, um, when we're going through the recap, we're going to have to have an in-depth discussion on sexy Sauron. Sexy (laughs) Sauron. Lord Anatar? See, that's a whole other thing, too, that (laughs) I was totally oblivious to prior to reading this. I mean, because the only time I've seen Sauron is in the big-ass spiky armor, Mm -hmm. you know, where he's a, a... specter that's larger than life and we get a whole different side of sauron it's yeah. kind of like skeletor yeah. you know he was this like really handsome charismatic dude so yeah um, i had no idea about the whole you know sauron put putting on his uh what was it they called it the his fair hue yeah. yes and uh changing his name to anatar the lord of gifts so I was I was telling Russell earlier that uh, in my household, no longer will we celebrate Christmas and Santa Claus. We will be um, we will be paying tribute to Anatar, the Lord of Gifts, <laughs> found at go. your local shopping mall for yeah. I think, photo opportunities. You know what? I think we definitely need to to do that. We need to figure out when to celebrate that. He sees you when you're sleeping. (laughs) He knows when you're making rings. (laughs) Cover those planetaries. If you're going off to region. Let me Uh, get my maps out. Man, maps are crucial. They Uh, really are. Like that can't be understated. Especially in this particular chapter where they're explaining where everyone is in correlation to one another and and the geography plays a substantial reason in why Sauron takes certain areas and not Mm -hmm. others. And we'll we'll talk in depth more about the the elves and the dwarves. This covers that kind of historical friendship that never before or after has existed. Well, and a lot of that was physical geography. And I think it's, it's, of course, well placed, even though half the story or half of, uh, of the Rings of Power is happening at the same time as the Kelebath. Mm-hmm. It helps to have read that ahead of time because you get the, the full story of what's happening in Numenor, and this is all about what's happening still in Middle Earth. And so when all the, the changes start happening, you've got a, a pretty good understanding of, okay, otherwise it's just the Numenorians popping up. And for some reason, Sauron doesn't like these people, even though he is the reason why he lost his hue. Is that what you call it? What was called? Yeah. His, his fair, fair hue. His fair hue. So. Yeah. That, I think that was one of the most interesting things to me was the, the fact that when we, when we got to read the letter, like it, it kind of switched up the, the timeline mm-hmm. for me. 
Um, so then, you know, I was, I was reading more into the letter and my, my question was kind of, okay, so what was, where was the ring at the time Mm -hmm. during the downfall of Numenor? And like, I found a lot of discussion about that online and like, it was so funny the the big thing that, that people can't get around, like the big question that everybody had was like, what happened to the ring when, you know, Sauron lost his physical body, like, you know, when, when he was, when he was drowned in, uh, Numenor, um, like they couldn't just like understand that like, okay, so the, the Ainur, they can like create the entire world without taking a physical form, but they can't carry a ring somewhere. Oh, I was just going to say the, uh, you know, trying to, um, figure out, you know, where the ring was, you know, at that time. Um, and they actually asked Tolkien about it. And his quote was that readers should dare not boggle <laughs> at Sauron's spirit carrying off a ring. <laughs> I, I thought that was great. I thought he left it in Baradur. Mm-hmm. I thought we'll he get left it in Baradur. So if we kind of run down the this week, um, this particular part is a work that Tolkien was doing in conjunction with chapters the shadow of the past and the council of elrond from the lord of the rings so we only read the first part of this which is the second age um and they mention a few things from the first age in there but our important players here are gilgalad the elven high king sauron or anatar as he's known he's the forger and the wielder of the one ring and celebrimbor who is an elf of the Lion of Feanor, the greatest smith of his time. I'm going to invoke the Christopher Tolkien rule. Okay. And it is Celebrimbor. Celebrimbor. Which, now that you say that, I remember when I was watching the extended edition, I have always pronounced it as Celeborn and Galadriel. But there is an additional scene Mm -hmm. um, where... I think it's Legolas or somebody is, is telling them, oh, this Haldir. is the realm. Yeah. And he says, who is it? Haldir. Haldir, thank yeah. you. And he says, the, this is the realm of Celeborn mm-hmm. and the lady Galadriel. So thank you for that distinction. I'll probably yeah, screw it up again. Gotta love okay. that Christopher Tolkien rule. <laughs> and he's the one that forged the uh, three elven rings. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which that that really surprised me how that whole thing went down because i did not get that at all yeah so i was going to ask that question and i guess this is now a good time because he learns from sauron and helps him make the other rings but he makes the elvish ones by himself yeah but the reading from of the rings of power made it sound like to me that there were a lot more than just three elvish rings that's what i thought too my understanding was that they made a bunch of rings and Mm. lost most of them somehow but managed to hold on to those three and yeah. hide them away um, so that they weren't tainted. Yeah. The way that, the way that I took it was there were, there were multiple Elvish rings made, but there were only three made that Sauron did not touch. So they were kept pure. Mm. Yeah. I think it, it might be in the letter. that says that they're the last ones that were made and they were the most powerful. The rings of earth, wind, and fire. <laughs> Literally. With their hit single, September. <laughs> ay, ay, 
Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm glad everybody else picked up on that too and had the same question because yeah. I was like, wait a minute. And that was about the only thing I did write down uh, for this week so far. And I was like, you know, that, that doesn't, that's not what, that's not part of the poem. Uh, and mm-hmm. I didn't want to jump to the poem just yet. But then he does kind of clarify it in the letter. Yes. How how that all came about. I so thought it was we... interesting. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Can I was just going to say, I thought it was interesting that um, even though it said that those three rings, they were the most powerful because they weren't tainted by Sauron, but they were still beholden to the one ring. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's when we start going through the rundown of this this yeah. section too, that will, that explained, there was so much in here that I was like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that makes sense. Oh, okay. That's how that works. And there's a lot in there about one, the power of the rings, but also like the fading and the diminishing. Cause they mentioned that so many times in the movies, you don't really get a good understanding of what it means. And like even Gladriel says there in, in fellowship, you know, I will go into there. I'll diminish and go into the West and that kind of thing. You don't really kind of get that. But in that same section, it says that um, they're, they still have power within the rings as long as the one ring still exists. But as soon as that one ring is gone, they pretty much have no no power. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was also interesting that one reason why they like being in Middle Earth is because they are at the top of the food chain, so to speak. Yes. And um, he makes a comment. There's a comment when we go through what happens where they kind of point out that the... Noldorian elves, they want the benefits of being on Middle Earth and kind of being at the top of the food chain, but they also want like the wisdom and the long life and everything that goes along with being an elf. And as what he says in the letter is that they want their cake, but not to eat it. Which I thought so, was very interesting. <laughs> they're, you know, so they don't want their cake and to eat it too. They just, they want their cake. And that's fine. They want the peace and they want all that. And he actually kind of refers to it as their downfall. But if we can touch on that further when we kind of go through the rundown here of what exactly happened. It kind of mimics that, um, you know, the elves wishing to have those three rings so they could preserve their time on Middle Earth. It kind of mimics the uh, the whole thing we got into in the Akalabeth with the the men rejecting the, the gift of mortality. Mm-hmm. So, And that mortality pops back up again here too so although not quite to the extent that it did in the others to, well, to me the way i took it was that um the elves kind of felt like they had a, a hand in creating and nurturing middle earth it was kind of like that um like when you have a really good like shitty dive bar <laughs> where it's like you know Your that there's better are. places out there but like this place is yours yeah. <laughs> there are many like it but this one is mine <laughs> all right yeah. so if we kind of do a rundown of what happened in this particular story so it starts off with the beginning of things where sauron is kind of pulled into it by Melkor and he wants that power and so he's easily swayed and he follows him and they describe him at that point as the fact that and this is what kind of introduces that he can assume many forms so he's not this you know big spooky scary knight 
you know, sort of visage, but he's actually can be anything that he wants, whatever he needs to be to persuade whomever he needs to persuade. Mm -hmm. But then Morgoth or Melkort falls and there's this seeming repentance where the rest of the Eldar are like, look, dude, <laughs> you can't do this. You know, this is, this is not right. And he seemingly repents and we think everything's going to be okay until he's told that he can't just be pardoned by the emissary. He's going to have to go back and talk to daddy and tell daddy that he screwed up and that he's sorry. And ultimately he decides not to do that. He's like, no, I ain't going. Which I think is, is, is very interesting. Um, that he's, he's all about asking for forgiveness from Shane. Do you, do you have his covers? Is it Aeon way? Is it Aeon way? Yeah. Uh, just wondering about pronunciation there. Yeah. Um, and then as soon as the Onway is like, you know, we're cool, but you gotta, you gotta be cool with daddy. Like you said, that seems almost too much for him. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's either too prideful or he becomes scared and decides to, to follow down Melkor's path and, and um, try try to go that route. And he can keep his, his power that way, you know, yeah. hanging out kind of what the elves do. It's like, well, I could, you know, I could be a sea chicken over there. Or I could kind of rule the place over here. Maybe I'll just hang out. And then I don't have to apologize to anyone. Right. And I think it's, uh, I'd like to introduce a potential discussion area, maybe not topic or anything, but I think this is one of, well, I guess it's really the secondary kind of instance where we have a fall of a Maiar. So we have several uh, with the Belrog, Balrogs that follow mm-hmm. Melkor. And then we had the fall of Sauron where he becomes a servant and then almost repents, um, but doesn't quite do it. And we don't quite find out exactly the reason, um, but it, at least so far in these readings, but it, it's, it's almost to make Middle Earth better mm-hmm. as, as he sees it, uh, because he understands Making that it's Middle Earth great again. Oh, God. I wasn't, I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> Well, now it, I've got to make, <laughs> now I have to make a meme <laughs> of, of Sauron with a, a little red hat on. <laughs> you got to put the little white ball on top though too. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, but, it's, yeah, the Mega crowd though. Because it, it, I mean, that same logic is exactly what you just said about the Noldorian elves is that they wanted to perfect and and he you know spells that out in the letter so to speak is the art he wants they want to perfect the art of middle earth um without giving up their power and that kind of thing and so it's almost as if that same aspect came to him and we see later on potentially if we get that far with our recordings that another my <laughs> um with with the multicolored dream coat um <laughs> pops in so I thought I thought that was an interesting kind of thing. We 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 see a lot of recurring things, and I know we've already mentioned mortality, and then also mm-hmm. the falls that are mentioned in the letter. Um, so I, I wanted to highlight that as well. But you know, like I, I keep going back to this, and you know, we we've talked about this I think the past two weeks, but with uh, you keep finding all these relations to like uh, the Bible mm-hmm. and like. You, you can draw a lot of uh, parallels to like the the fall of Lucifer and 
you know, the fallen angels and the fallen Maiar. So it's, I, I keep getting, you know, biblical vibes from a lot of this stuff. And the ones who are cast out are the ones who won't repent. You know, mm-hmm. they're the ones who won't go to Big Daddy and say, hey, I screwed up or I was wrong or, you know, maybe you know better than I do. Which is another connection that he himself made in the, in the letter, which is another there again, one more area where it's a great reference. Mm-hmm. Of course, he, he hates allegory and refuses to call it that, but he essentially mentions that there are several uh, within that passage, so to speak. So around the same time that he's hanging out trying to figure out what to do, the dwarves and are in Moria. And the elves are in Austin and A Hill. I can't. I have no idea how Austin to. Austin A Hill. Yeah. Austin A Hill. Um, those are the Noldaren elves, and then we've got f- what I have been referring to as feral elves that are like kind of <laughs> all over the continent. I mean, that's the only thing they don't—they're yeah. not really given a name. Um, but he talks about the <laughs> fact that they're not really—they don't know anything about the Valar. They don't, oh, yeah. you know, all of that is kind of unknown. They're just kind of elves the, that are wandering around. And then we've got the men in the south, um, and everybody's just kind of doing their own thing. And Sauron is like, aha, I have a plan. I'm going to put on my fair hue and, you know, convince all these people that we should all band together and they should listen to me and do what I say in order to make Middle-earth great again. Um, And so he starts his plan of winning hearts and minds by, by wandering around middle earth chatting with people and he does it pretty damn successfully it works yeah he gives every citizen of middle earth a twelve hundred dollar economic stimulus (laughs) check personally signed by antar and and then a letter to tell you that he hopes you appreciated his twelve hundred dollar gift So he finds it very, very easy to sway the men that this is not a problem at all and actually does not have too terribly difficult of time of swaying the elves either, with the exception of two places that he does not go. And one of those for the elves is Elrond. Elrond has set up Rivendell and he's like, I know Elrond doesn't like me. I know Elrond doesn't trust me. I am not going to deal with Elrond at all. And so he takes the name Anatar, the Lord of Gifts. Oh, and the and Gilgalad also wants yeah. nothing to do with him. Gilgalad and Elrond saw through his bullshit. So yeah, mm-hmm. I thought that but was pretty interesting. That, so he goes to all these other people. Just the, the parallels right now are crazy to me. <laughs> he goes to all of the other elves and all of the other humans, and he uses. Gilgalad and Elrond as foils for like, well, these guys, they don't trust me. They don't want to make Middle Earth great again, you know, and he uses them as an excuse or as a justification, you know, for this is what you don't want to be like, join me. And this is what we should be doing instead. That was a pretty good passage. (laughs) I mean, almost word for word. (laughs) It's basically like if, if you're not with us, you're against us. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, we can make this a, pa- a paradise, just like Valinor. So, did you guys pick up on the the fact of the the dwarves, where basically he gave them the rings 
and he was talking about how they're almost incorruptible like yes. their their lives can't be dominated yes. um, and they basically just took the rings and used them to build hordes of gold yes so and only... this, the seven the seven rings were the central fo- focus foci for the seven made dwarven hordes yeah. The, the foundation of the seven hordes of uh, dwarvish gold were golden rings. The rings. Yeah. Because it didn't really affect their mindsets at all, except for enhancing their lust for gold. For gold. Stubborn dwarves. So wanting this craftsmanship and, and the elves and the dwarves are all buddies. He kind of uses this like to convince them to use their artistry to make these amazing rings and the elves make them. And, and this was something that surprised me because I assumed that he made them all and then disseminated them. But according to the rings of power, the elves made all of their rings. And then he, did he steal some of those? And those are the ones that he then gave to the dwarves and the humans, and then they only have the three remaining. Well, and that, that's kind of where it's a little confusing, or at least it yeah. was for me, because it did sound like they made a bunch of rings, and yes. then he got a lot of rings by some sort of means. And then, and I think we haven't—I don't think we've gotten there yet in mm-hmm. your review, where he launches the, the war against them and then reclaims more, and that's where he gets most of the dwarven rings back. Um, but as they're doing this, as they're making these rings, the elves, he's secretly forging this other ring in Mordor, in Mount Doom, that is the one ring that has control over everything else. But they were all of them deceived. The way I read it, and I could I could have read this wrong, but um, he basically took the the sorcery and you know what he had learned from from Melkor. And had his hand in helping, you know, the the dwarves and the men and the elves learn how to forge the rings. Mm-hmm. He basically taught them how, but he was part of it. And then Celebrimbor created the three main rings of power. I forget what the names were. I had them memorized there um, for about they five are minutes. Naria, Nenya, and Vilya. Is it- Naria is the ring of fire. Nenya is the ring of water, and Vilya is the ring of air. Oh man, why couldn't it be Earth, Wind, and Fire? <laughs> um, and then there was uh, the little kid that had the ring of heart, and then they, uh, with their Came powers combined, combined, they they form four. Captain Middle Earth, <laughs> Lord of Planets. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, savior of the Shire. His fair um, blue hue and green hair. <laughs> so yeah, I just uh, you know this part of it, it was just giving like like more background into you know how the rings were were created and who they went to. I thought the my favorite part of all this was when they they kind of got into um, a little more in depth about the the nine mortal men and how. Mm-hmm. And um, we'll we'll get to that. Yeah. So that, that was really cool. So along the lines that this is going on, oh, and the, the, the one ring, which they don't really go into, but the one ring allows him to sense what is going on 
around all of the other rings. So if someone's using one of the rings, he can then tell what, what they're doing. And ideally, you know, this was all supposed to be in secret and no one is supposed to know about this one ring. But the elves realize what's going on and they secret their three rings away so that he cannot taint them. But they hide them and they don't use them for fear that, you know, they'll be ruined in the process. Did it explain how the elves knew? Like I don't I don't recall. It just kind of said that they, they sensed they were savvy. Yeah. When Sauron put his ring on, they could tell. So something. Yeah, somehow, um, like his true purpose was revealed to them when he put on the One Ring um, through its connection as master of all the other ones. Even though those were unsullied, they were still connected to the to the network. They were part of the land. So, um, but as long as they weren't used, they would be okay. Right. And at the same time, they still wore them and that kind of thing. So uh, it, it is one of those areas where it doesn't go into a lot. And kind of like the number of rings that we're talking about is yeah. that it doesn't really spell things out uh, word for word. <laughs> so some of it is kind of suspended belief of, well, the rings were powerful, but how how were they powerful? Oh. We never get how yeah. they were. They were just powerful. So because like you said, when they use the rings, okay, but how does it, what does it mean to use the, the rings? I, I got the impression and I can't remember if it was from the reading or the letter where he kind of explains that it just enhances everything. Mm-hmm. Like it just makes them a little more powerful or, you know, a little more long lived or, like or whatever situation. <laughs> yeah. I think that was in the letter. Cause I, I saw that too. Uh, I thought it was a really good explanation of, it doesn't like it doesn't actually extend anybody's life. It it just extends. What, he uses the analogy of, of a wire, like just mm. pulling a wire taut, or at least it, it did in my copy. Uh, there's a footnote um, where it talks about like like the whole uh, spreading butter uh, too mm. thin over bread. You're not really adding any butter, so your life isn't actually extending. It's just being stretched out and spread over too far yeah. a distance said um there was a passage in there that was really cool it said something like uh they had they had unending life but life became unbearable for them yeah Mm -hmm. so So. yet again there's that that whole sense of eternal life or an extended life not necessarily being all that it's cracked up to be um i also thought it was cool how we get more insight into uh, the geography of Middle Earth here, where it's, um, you know, it it talks about Numenor's downfall um, and then the establishment of the two kingdoms, uh, Arnor that's in Eriador led by Elendil and Mm -hmm. Gondor in the south led by Elendil's sons, Isildur and Anarion. So. And this is after Sauron has gone off. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's this whole section in here and I was like, oh, because I was confused because all of a sudden it's like, and Sauron goes off to Numenor. Yeah. And then everything that we've talked about last week with the fall of Numenor and the, you know, and he, all that happens and then the Numenorians end up on Middle Earth mm-hmm. and all that sort of begins too where he, he, you know, worms his way into the council and all that. Which I, I thought was very interesting. There again, that you know, we see him do that with the elves and and the Haladrim and and all the other 
creatures of Middle Earth, and then he launches that war against the elves and and pretty much decimates everything, and gets to a point where he's like, all right, now we're well, he declares himself what Lord Lord of the Land. Uh, or Lord of the West, and I believe. Referred to it as the Black Years, and <clears throat> the language becomes the Black Speech, and, and that's where the Numenorians come in because they find out that because this is when they have those like colonies and stuff, and so they find out what he's done and declared himself, and our Farazan gets pissed off, and that starts the whole Alcalabeth story. So I thought it was really good there again that we had we had those kind of background stories for that side of things, and now we get the kind of Elvish side. Um, and it makes it it makes the whole story a lot richer, even though it's like ten pages, I think, yeah. of the Rings of Power, at least up to the third age section. So, I think well, as I, Shane mentioned earlier, he's so during this time, Elrond's building Rivendell, Sauron's disseminating the rings, the seven that go to the dwarves make them doesn't really change their nature, but maybe enhances it a bit where they become you know, focused on gold and, you know, bringing wealth and doing all of that <clears throat> to the point that they just become obsessed with hoarding. And then Shane's part that he mentioned earlier is the nine go to the men and they're pretty easily um, swayed and changed. Mm -hmm. And some of that is simply because they see everything that, that Sauron kind of puts into their mind and it pretty much drives them crazy. Well, I think too, this section talks about, uh, Shane alluded to it, I think last week, the two or three Numenorians that actually become, they receive uh, some of the rings and have already gone back to their kind of colonies as the ring starts to take them over. And so uh, we get we actually get their names, which I thought mm -hmm. was very interesting mm -hmm. um, and very, very cool that some of them are actually Numenorians. And they become our Nazgul. And they're kind of trapped between worlds and are kind of there, but not really. And I like how um, in this reading, it, it talks about several different locations. And mm -hmm. I kept going, oh, it's like, I know that place. I've heard that before. And then um, it's talking about like Minas Ethil and Minas Arnor. And then it talks about Isengard. And I was yeah. like, oh, yeah. shit, it's Isengard. That was pretty and, uh, well, because the Numenorians land on Middle Earth and they establish this kind of great culture and build and build and build and build. And that's one of those things. It talks about the uh, the Tower of Isengard and the pinnacle of Orkanth and how it was built out of unbreakable stone. And I was yeah. like, oh, yes. That is pretty cool. Yeah. It's super dark. Well, you, need, you can start picking up the, the major cities uh, mm -hmm. on but also the ones in Arnor when you got Fornost and um, I don't even know how to pronounce the like capital city of Arnor and Numenos, um, something along those lines, which I'm fairly certain is a big, bad, evil guy in Stargate. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they, yeah, they establish Gondor, Osgiliath. They bring in the White Tree. They build Isengard. The white um, tree. And, and then they create, the they create the uh, sending stones or the seven stones where they can communicate with one another all over the land, no matter where they are. One of are those one, the, are those the ones from the movie? The, mm -hmm. the, okay, cool. Yep. That's and that's what, I thought, what becomes the Palantir. Yeah. 
the farseers the farseers that sauron corrupts and so you know we talked about denethor like i never understood how he quite became where how he did that's not really that doesn't go into much detail Mm -hmm. but when you read into it it's because he has a palantir yeah and all that sauron ever shows him is the worst of everything he shows him all the doom and all the dread and all of the horrible things and everything that's going to fall and he twists his view to the point where he just loses his mind and just assumes that nothing good will ever happen pretty much so it has been interesting to read that entire kind of timeline from the the faithful getting the seven seeing stones from the elves, the Eldar that are still visiting them from Aresia and Valinor itself. Uh, once they kind of stop coming to visit Numenor and have kind of really banished the Numenorians, and then they are able to take the faithful are able to take the seeing stones back to middle earth when Numenor is destroyed. And there's what, uh, two or there's, there's three in Gondor. And I think the other four are, are one in Orthanc and then, um, the rest of the four are, are up in uh, Arnor. Yeah, because uh, he took three and then two went to each of his sons. Mm-hmm. So, and then you get you know, Gandalf in the movie talking about the lost seeing stones are not all accounted for. There you go. Now we know where they came from, at least. Because knowing is half the battle. <laughs> G.I. Joe. See how many references we can get in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so the the thing that stands out for the letter um, for me was where Tolkien kind of lays out his the main themes of the Second Age in his mm-hmm. point of view, which were the delaying of the elves, the mm-hmm. rise of Sauron, and the downfall of Numenor. Yeah. So he talks about um, the themes and then the rest of the history of the second age, which, you know, really kind of put everything in perspective. Like it didn't all come together for me until I read the letter. And then it, it kind of made like whoever came up with this read along the, the layout for how it should be read is a genius because it just, it all, it put everything together. Like it was perfect. I have to echo that sentiment. Each each reading has so far been excellent uh, on its own. I like the first week, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But it, you know, it's, like you said, they kind of got better as the weeks gone on, and then even well, even and, other and of power because we're like backfilling yeah. some true. of this information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious to see as we go forward how much better or easier it is for me right. to enjoy it. I'm going to put one more, um, one more call out in there. The The only way I could relate this is if you guys ever read like Star Wars expanded universe books yeah. where it just kind of fills in yeah. little minute details of things that you had heard of. This is kind of like the, the expanded universe of Tolkien. But Maybe. written by the original yeah. creator. Yeah. Instead of multiple authors, not that there's anything wrong with multiple authors, but you, you have one person who has expended all of their time and energy and every bit of their being that is not, you know, given to family or whatever to creating this world. And there's, you know, like the, um, Star Wars universe has, uh, 
Pablo Hidalgo and the, the holocron, um, the keeper of the holocron, whose, you know, entire job is to manage continuity. Mm-hmm. Um, but with this, we have the, the author. And we have Stephen Colbert. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah, there's somebody, there's a, a person with Halo that has like the Halo Bible. It's got mm-hmm. everything laid out. But I still don't think anything. So I actually read all of the letter that was contained in my book. So I, st- I went from the very beginning instead of oh. jumping uh, from where it says to start. And so I got a lot of the extra. And that's maybe what I was mentioning earlier that was a little unfamiliar for anybody that didn't happen to read it. Because he starts off with a lot of um, explanation and exposition on how he came about the story and from his history as a philologist, philologist, <laughs> philologist, uh, and learning about languages and in his creation of a language and its perfection over time. And the fact that it's actually two languages. And then somehow he's maintained those two languages that kind of themselves created a legendarium and that kind of thing. And so there was a lot of, a lot of extra to it that, um, it, there again, though, it clicked once he, he said all that and then he kind of laid out his examples and it ties everything back together. Just just how involved um, he was. And I still almost think it was just kind of a, a, a hobby for him that it was it was just fun to create a language and then to create a backstory to it. Well, yeah. And, and think of the time. I mean, it's not like today where we have so many distractions, you know, yeah. there maybe it would be different. And I'm sure there are still people out there like Tolkien who Tolkien, which I always said Tolkien until I got ready to go to uh, New York to the museum and I watched the film and he like clearly says it's Tolkien, sir. So I, but I catch myself switching back every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah, If, if Tolkien had access to Pornhub, we may never have gotten <laughs> half of this stuff. But to kind of wrap this up before we head into our discussion questions, this is kind of where we begin with the prologue to Lord of the Rings, the, the fellowship, where Sauron eventually is like, okay, I'm going to make my move and you know we're going to go to war. And he creates a new visage. So he creates that image that we see of this, you know, monstrosity of a creature in black burnt metal. After he's lost his form from Numenor. After he's lost his form in Numenor uh, when he dissipates, but he doesn't die. He just doesn't have that physical form anymore. Kind of so like. Creates this creepy, scary, you know. The Sauron, kind of, we all It's kind of going to be like when people see me after this quarantine is over <laughs> and I've gained like 80 pounds and my fair hue is gone. <laughs> or your friend that kind of reappears out of the bar after they've been gone for a little while. And you know they've had a little bit too much because you guys all remember what bars are, right? You know, yeah, vaguely. Public, look, I don't know what public means yeah. anymore. but yeah. I just drink in my office. That's all I do. <laughs> and retalking. <laughs> Ellen Dill and Gilgalad form what they refer to as the Last Alliance, and they gather the men and the elves, and they head off to Mordor, to the Black Gate, to uh, see Sauron. And it and takes them forever. 
It takes them forever. And they fight for seven freaking years. I had no idea. I, I guess I missed that somehow. And it was that extended of a siege. There must have been a... oil there. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> uh, I can't remember if it's in the timeline or not because uh, uh, somewhere I read another famous speech. Somewhere I read um, that they gather at the, the Great Watchtower of Amonsul, otherwise known as Weathertop, for some, <laughs> of, you, some of you noobs. Um, well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's pronounced too. Um, no. Uh, they gathered there for three years. Just Well, they, they stayed there for three years to gather their forces and then made their march on uh, the Black Gates at... at Dagor, Dagor yeah. lad. Well, they yeah, they eventually they reach yeah they they get together at in four years or whatever, and then they go through the Misty Mountains, and then eventually, and they kind of gather people as they go far. And there's over? a quote in there where he says, "All living things were divided in that day, and some of every kind, even beasts and birds, were found in either host, save the elves only." Yeah, which I thought was pretty powerful. Durin and Moria um, are behind the alliance and go against Sauron. And then begins, you know, the great siege. And eventually towards the end of that, when Sauron seems to believe that all is about to be lost and he's going to win, then he shows up and is like, hey, guys, I'm going to come kick your ass. Um, But... Elendil pulls out Narsil and it, it blinds the orcs and terrifies them. And, you know, yeah. he goes up against Sauron. The blade is broken, but it causes Sauron to stumble and fall. And Isildur takes the sword at that point and severs the ring of power from his hand, which then separates his control over all of the other rings. Thus ends the second age. Destroy it. It's your lore. Yeah, according to the timeline in Appendix B, the last alliance of men and elves, or actually it's elves and men, was formed in 3430 of the second age. I do not have the Shire record, so don't even don't even go there. Um, <laughs> they gather, or they cross the Misty Mountains and take on uh, the Battle of uh, Dagorlad at 3434. And then uh, Narion is slain in 3440, and they f- are finally able to to mark or break. Or Sauron comes out to break the siege of Barad-dûr in 3441, which is when he's. Which I thought I think we mentioned last week too. He's he's actually he's taken down by Ilandil and Gil-galad, even though they they perish along the way, and he is like down on the ground, like you said. And the Sildor is the one that he just kind of comes up and says, "Ha ha." Cuts his cuts his finger off, which, as we said, he's poured all of his his will and power into the ring. So, um, it's not the best thing in the world for him to be without it. But that kind of goes back to that question of, well, he was without it at Numenor, or was he? Mm-hmm. And so begins. It's ten o'clock. Do you know where your one ring is? <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
So uh, when you say narsil, you are referring to narsil, which the fragments were then later for reforged into Andril, the flame of the West. Yes. That narsil? Given to Aragorn, son of Arathorn. This, this, this is making us unbearable. I, I'm making like obnoxious, winky faces. Right now. We might have to get to the point where we <laughs> put these out on on uh, YouTube or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to that, then. I'd have to like make an effort to like do my hair and makeup and stuff. I have no and pants on. <laughs> do you ever though? Uh, as little as possible. <laughs> so, guys, we are fifty-five minutes into this now. Um, <laughs> although some of that was some pre-stuff, but I believe it is time for us. Ramble on. To move into our discussion questions, which I find that we, we kind of end up answering a lot of these questions as we've gone along. We're just so that good. We are, aren't we? Don't do you see how we blend this seamlessly together without without seeming to? So let's see. Now that we are finishing part one of the read-along, you should have encountered three different versions from Tolkien of the two main narratives of the second age, how do they compare to each other and which one did you enjoy the most? What do, all right. What are we calling the three? Obviously we got the Akalabeth. Mm-hmm. Are we calling the appendices one? I don't think so. Cause the appendices and the Akalabeth were basically the same. same thing. Okay. I think it was like the Akalabeth, the, of the rings of power and the letter. 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 Okay, I can go with that. And I'm going. I'm going letter. The letter put it all together for me. Like the the rings of power was a more interesting read to me from a story perspective, right? Of creating mm-hmm. a vision in my mind. But the letter is what put it all together. It, it cemented all of those pieces. So for that reason, I'll have to go with the letter. Uh, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to say all three. <laughs> so I really, yeah, I really like the Akelabeth and its focus on Numenor and the men. And at the same time, I really like Of the Rings of Power and its focus on before and after, really, the, the Akelabeth, the downfall of, of Numenor. And so we get that focus on what else is happening in Middle Earth. So I almost would argue that they're kind of two separate stories, even though we get a little bit of overlap um, with the two. And then I'd have to wholeheartedly agree with with the letter in that it really it really ties the room together, dude. Um, <laughs> and it it really does kind of bring everything together. Although I did have one question. Um, in, so even. I think we're up to like 50 references. So um, I did have one question from the letter and I didn't, we haven't discussed it. So I'm going to try to throw it out here real quick. He does mention that um, the Akalabeth is there and, and of the rings of power is this there. The second age as a whole is the second downfall of man. Mm -hmm. And then in parentheses, it says the first is not mentioned in these works and that's all we get. So I'm wondering and then what is he also kind of makes the comment about the he doesn't call it the downfall of the elves. I forget what he refers to it as, but like their error. Yeah. So he mentions that too. Well, he even calls it at one point like the doom of the elves. And I think he's I I, I picked up that as mo, mo, maybe the, the immortality question. 
So they're doomed to be immortal, but tied to the world. And these, the the Noldorian elves are especially, I don't want to use the word corrupt, but um, But they're they're susceptible. Yeah, they're... They're prideful and wanting the art side. Yeah, they're they're definitely not the squeaky clean, you know, Eldar that we saw. Was that the delaying? The delaying of the elves? Yeah. Because they, they are ultimately delaying their return to, to mm-hmm. Valinor and the Undying Lands and diminishing and going and into like, the West. No, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll be there. <laughs> just, just give us, you know, a couple more Years. centuries yeah. and then we'll be there. Give us another pandemic or two and, and we'll, we'll, we'll get through all the words. <laughs> <laughs> what similarities and or differences do you see between Sauron's surrender to Eonwi at the end of the first age and his later surrender to Arpharazon? And what do you make of the suggestion that his repentance of evil may not at first have been falsely done? So I, we kind of covered this, but I don't think we talked terribly much about it, but it is kind of suggested that he genuinely did repent he, he really was like, oh, man, okay, yeah, maybe that was a bad idea. But it was the prospect of having to go home and talk to dad and apologize that kind yeah. of made him like, yeah, never mind. Yeah, I, I thought I thought it was a fascinating. And there again, that, that um, he, he does do the same thing to the elves that he eventually does to the Numenorians. And I also like that, you know, this at least faux surrender, I, I think maybe it was genuine. And it wasn't until, you know, he was allowed to kind of sulk in the background that his pride did take over and he decided that he would be better off staying there. Whereas I think when he surrendered to our Farazan, he had a plan all the way and, you know, it was, well, okay, I'm not, I'm going to totally make this work in my favor. So. Do you think it's because of that, that because no one really came after him when he decided to stay on Middle Earth instead of going home, that he was like, oh. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think his repentance was initially genuine because he just watched them totally fuck up Melkor and banish him into the void. So I do think at the heart of it, he thought, okay, yeah, this is legit. Uh, my bad. I do not want to be gone. And then he saw them kind of retreat and go back to what they were doing. And he was like, Oh, well, they don't care about middle earth anymore. So I'm just going to make it my dominion. And so I, th- I think that's kind of along the lines of what happened. Yeah. Same. My, my note that I wrote was uh, that Sauron's surrender in the first age was out of fear. His surrender in the second age was out of deceit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. All right. Uh, and, what do you think of the Noldor's willingness to accept Sauron's ring lore? How do you interpret the elven desire to delay and preserve time on Middle-earth? And is this unwillingness to move on a personal failing or a noble endeavor? There's a lot, lot to unpack there. So I think um, basically what Sauron did was he appealed to the elves' vanity. Yep. And... Gilgalad and Elrond completely saw through his bullshit, but like we had said before, the elves, their, their wish to preserve time on middle earth. Um, it kind of mimics that men refusing the gift of mortality and, you know, kind of like I was saying about their, their shitty dive bar. Like, you know, they, they just wanted to stay on middle earth cause you know, it was, you know, they kind of felt responsible for it. Yeah. 
yeah, I, I think it's definitely along the lines of that art and them wanting to perfect their art. And so they, they didn't want to pass into the Undying Lands because they felt like they still could improve things. And he came along and said, we can. I can show you how. So I definitely see that. They wanted to have their cake and not eat it, like yep. Jen said. Yep. Well, I stole it from Tolkien. But yeah, I mean, it. I that kind of made me chuckle when I read it. And, you know, as for whether it's a personal failing or a noble endeavor, I, I guess that that's kind of up to... Well, the reader i mean it yeah. it's a little bit of both to me i mean there's it's like this concept of altruism i remember when i was this is i studied anthropology and i'm you know you're constantly looking at yourself and how you're perceiving things right in order to try not to put your personal feelings into things and just observe them and we were talking about altruism and the whole concept of altruism is that you're doing things solely for the goal of helping others and gaining nothing in return. Right. So, but you do. And so I would find that like when I would do nice things, it would make me feel good. And so is that really altruism? Right. Like if I'm getting something out of it, is it really that, you know, and I, I think there were probably elves that in some cases it was just, you know, vanity. And in other cases, it was like, well, look what we could build here. Look what we could mm -hmm. do, you know? And, and the fact that he went out of his way to like avoid Elrond and, yeah. you know, he clearly knew his audience and, and who was going to listen to him and, you know, who he could appeal to. And, you know, so we know that he kind of went for the low hanging fruit in that, right. that case. So that makes me kind of wonder, but but it's it's like we're getting diluted. These are like the diluted elves, like diluted, not diluted. Although there's probably a little bit of delusion <laughs> there too. But yeah. you know, this is like Elf 2.0. These aren't you know the Eldar that that we knew before, and so all of that's kind of changing. So I'm trying to judge them on a different standard than well, I would elves that came before them. And I think there's a certain element too, and I make a couple of analogies of. The, um, you know, your, your scientists were so focused on what they could do, they didn't ask themselves if they should. Um, same thing with uh, the best of intentions. Some of the worst actions of InGen, the company, you know, came from <laughs> the best intentions and they created the worst uh, occasions. And my last one is uh, you know, the atomic bomb. You know, we got all these really genius uh, scientists that developed this creation. And as soon as it's created, they immediately dedicate their lives to its abolishment and wishing they had never done that work. Uh, so I think there's there's some there's some kind of connections there in terms of uh, progress for the sake of progress, which I think is another thing that we're going to visit with another Maiar uh, in 2037. But um, you know, down down the road, because uh, I think that's that's too a part of what because he talks about the machine and yes and modernization and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. so. Reminds me of a famous quote by Anatar, the Lord of Gifts. I am become death, destroyer of worlds. <laughs> exactly. Very famous, as he said. <laughs> Under the Akalabeth. The downfall of the Trinity Project. <laughs> the Manhattan Project, Trinity Bomb. Who's going next? Okay, so Tolkien enumerated to Milton Waldman three themes of the Second Age. 
do you feel that accurately represents the text that you have been reading? So this is what you were talking about earlier. Yeah, the the delaying of the elves, the rise of Sauron, and the downfall of Numenor. I mean, we, we, one of the stories is literally called the downfall. Yeah. So I, think I mean, we... I thought, <laughs> like, you know, if, if if you hold a gun to my head and say, you know, give me the the three, uh, the three bullet points for what you've read over the past three weeks, it's yeah. uh, uh, elves, <laughs> uh, Sauron, downfall, of Numenor. Yeah. So yeah, I think you nailed it. Yeah. We agree. So we do it. We agree. So we do it. Although the versions in the back of Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion put the Numenor perspective before the Age of the Rings of Power perspective, Tolkien wrote the letter the other way around. Uh, and which order makes more sense to you? Um, I didn't even notice, honestly. I think they've all kind of melded together in my head. And I'm starting to see them as a timeline now instead of linear well i mean it's still linear but you know what i mean i'm seeing the branches instead of just the straight line so i didn't i hadn't even noticed honestly that it was done in reverse order the letter made more sense to me um just because the sims version it confused me on the location of the ring the letter Mm -hmm. kind of you know put the timeline of you know what was happening at the same times um it put it in perspective so that was when I kind of, you know, saw that, you know, Sauron did have the ring uh, when Numenor sank. So kind of what I was, was saying earlier, you know, just kind of put everything in perspective and just brought it all together for me. So, yeah, I, I'd have to kind of agree. Uh, I thought of the rings of power gave a better illustration um, cause it does put at least appendices B the the actual timeline into a, a descriptive format. So you, you get all that information because you get the Akelabath, but you don't really get a whole lot of what's going on in middle earth uh, except for Sauron did this. And then they went and captured Sauron and you're like, all right, but well, what, are, what are everything else is going on? So I do think of the rings of power did a whole lot better job of describing what's happening on middle earth, which was its purpose. And the Numenor was saying what's happening on the island of Numenor. So I thought it was pretty good. But there again, the letter ties it, really ties it together, man. So. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Couldn't help myself. Um, Is there any way that Sauron could have been saved from turning evil? I thought this was a fantastic question. Like I, I really love digging into this question. So (laughs) I, I found a a passage that says, and he fell back into evil for the bonds that Morgoth had laid upon him were very strong. And I think that the Valar could have saved him, that he could have been redeemed if he had returned to Valinor when he was told to, but he was too much of a pussy to do that. And he kind of, you know, reaped what he sowed. But then again, like every good story needs a big, bad, evil guy. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think I thought that was a really good passage as well. Um, but I also don't think they, they put a lot of effort into it uh, and tried <laughs> to bring him back. 
Um, yeah. Well, like, that's what I was. Oh, thank say. God, he's not going to come. Yeah. Yeah. Like, do you think if they had been more humble or more kind, it, or if they had, you know, presented it differently, would they have done a better job? Because I mean, we, we, one of the impressions that I get from elves and every single bit of fantasy I have ever read is that elves are very stuck up, very haughty, very um, unimpressed. Um, so, and and a lot of that is described as, you know, living for millennia instead of decades and how that has an impact on your view and how things that other people think are very important are, you know, non-essential. So, I mean, I can't picture them, you know, saying, come here, buddy, you know, and giving him a hug and <laughs> patting him on the back and saying, it's going to be okay. You know, the way that, that I sit down with my children when, you know, something has happened and they're in trouble and they know they're in trouble and I'm trying to get them to internalize that and understand that. But my goal ultimately is to make it a learning experience. So that they don't do it again. And I mean, granted, it's a very short section, but I didn't get any of that vibe. It was like, yo, man, you screwed up. You know, come tell dad you're sorry. And and that was the extent of it. And he was like, nah, I'm not going to do that. Well, I mean, if Manway really wanted him, he could have just sent fucking lightning eagles to carry yeah. his ass back to Valinor. <laughs> so the fact that he didn't, you know, either he was doing like you said, Jen, you know, giving him the chance to come to the correct choice on his own like you want your kids to do um and then he just didn't do it or he just didn't care yeah yeah well and i just i think with the kids though i try to shelter i try to push them there so that they see it you know i don't just leave them out there and say all right you know honestly the punishment that i received as a child I was never spanked. I think I was spanked like twice in my life. And I'll tell you, I deserved it when I was spanked. Um, but I was sent to my room and I could not come out of my room until I could tell my father what I had done, why it was wrong and how I was going to make sure it was never going to happen again. And that required me to literally put thought into it, or at least think enough to figure out what to say to get out of my room, right? <laughs> um, but it was a process that I had to take part in. It wasn't just like figure out, it's like, you know, I, I have never, I, I don't think I've ever been guilty of that that stereotypical, you know, well, if you don't know what you did wrong, I'm not gonna tell you kind of a thing. Um, I mean, I, I want to help my children get to a point where they realize, you know, what's gone on and what's wrong so that I'm sure that they understand that. And it doesn't seem like that happened here. Like it was more of like, Hey, you know, Sauron, like Russ said, you should figure out what's, you know, what you've done wrong. Now I just have this vision in my head of, uh, you know, Manway being like, okay, now what did you do wrong? <laughs> Made some rings, <laughs> corrupted them, gave some to the dwarves. Killed a lot of elves. Made a lot Killed of orders. Why was it wrong, Sauron? Why? I learned it from watching you, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Just wanted to make you proud. 
How are we going to make sure it doesn't happen again? We're going to go through little strings into Mount Doom. Okay, it is clear from the letter that Numenor is Tolkien's Atlantis flood myth. What are your thoughts on his version versus some of the various versions from real-life mythologies or religions, like the Genesis flood, the Norse Burglemere, or the Chinese Gunyu? I'm not really familiar with any of them other than Genesis. But I yeah, mean, I guess same. It's, it's, it's that story you know the mm -hmm. essentially we've fucked up and so we're gonna wipe everything out and start fresh and i'm i'm curious i mean clearly in since both cases people survive there's some way that you know people are either pardoned enough and allowed to continue on or um you know are clever enough to figure it out so well it's very similar to even the garden of eden you, you you can do anything but this one thing, and and same thing with Genesis. Believe and and but don't, you know don't do anything else. And then there's always a group that does do it, and there's a group that doesn't do it and remains faithful or whatnot. In this instance, they are called faithful. And so I, I'm, I'm like you guys. I actually don't know anything about the the Norse or the Chinese versions, but you know I know the Epic of Gilgamesh and that there is an almost identical flood there, and it, and it also is the same thing. So um, I think it's interesting uh, in my various random readings on the, the Googles um, that people uh, call it or uh, that it is his Atlantis one, but I didn't expect him in the letter to actually call it, you know, this is my Atlantis myth, Atlantis dash Numenor or Numenor dash Atlantis, which I thought was very interesting. He made the connection himself. Mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't ever know that. So. The, I, I agree with, with both of you. Um, the only thing that, that I got that may be a little different was to me, the, the flood in, in Genesis is more of, it's ultimately a redemption story because after the flood, you know, it talks about God adding beauty to the world. Um, but to me, the, the fall of Numenor was, was more like a punishment or a cautionary tale because whereas, you know, God added beauty to the world after the flood, Manway bent the earth to put men farther away from beauty. So it was almost, it was more diabolical, I guess, you know, or more punishing in a sense. Well, and our, our survivors in this case too, the Numenorians who managed to make it, they do that on their own wits. You know, they're not, they're not given any warning ahead of time either to say like, Hey, you really, you know, shouldn't do this. I mean, except they're kind eagles. of, you know, except for lightning eagles, right? A hell of a lot different than the dove with the, the branch in its mouth. Um, but they're not, they're, they're, they've survived by their cleverness and the fact that they, you know, they don't really commit to being truly evil, you know, which is why, they hop on their boats and, you know, so they're, they're better than the ones who remain behind, but yeah, they're I'm, not necessarily the faithful. What I'm going to, I'm going to disagree. Okay. I'm going to disagree with both of you and say that in fact, this actually is a redemptive art for the faithful Ellen Dill and, and his sons and their, their group of, of people, because it essentially, 
destroys everybody else who was not faithful and puts them on a path to glory, so to speak. Um, one that they cannot see and they don't live to see the end of it, but ultimately their setup is to destroy the one ring and destroy the evil that is Sauron, uh, evil incarnate essentially in, in this age and the third age. And so it's really the will of Eru Iluvatar that sets them on this path of redemption. So I does it. I guess we're gonna have to keep reading. <laughs> I guess we'll just agree to disagree. <laughs> that's good. That's fine. No, that's that's not. It's 2020. That's not allowed. Oh, I'm sorry. You got to see it my way, man. That's that's um that's something I absolutely refuse to fall prey to. So. Unfriended. Or this this whole concept that like you know, or even if you have a disagreement at some point that you know you're not allowed to change your mind or like what like somehow disagreement means that you have it's to hate allowed. someone. I just don't. I don't understand that. I mean, it's, it's almost scary. like you don't want to make Middle Earth great again. I, I guess I don't. <clears throat> I guess I'm just not behind the make Middle Earth great again movement. Must be because you hate Middle Earth. Communist. That's clearly the case. <laughs> <laughs> Shane, will you bring us our current Elvish phrase of the week? Elvish, Elvish phrase of the week. <laughs> Alright, so... This week's Elvish Phrase of the Week, um, I, I tried to find something that kind of uh, encapsulated the the last few readings that we've had. And kind of the, the overarching thing was kind of like the downfall, the end of one age, the beginning of another. So um, I found an Elvish phrase that sounded pretty cool. And it is, Sina Iveth, Iveth Naid Bain, which means... Here at the end, the end of all things. Which is what I Sam says. He does say that in Return of the King, I think. Uh, so what is it? Sinai Eveth. Sinai Eveth. Eveth Naid Bain. Nope. Can't get it. Can't get the second one. Sinai Eveth. Eveth. Sinbad. Eveth Naid. Eveth Naid Bain. Naid Bain. All right. I like it. So here at the end, the end of our third episode. (laughs) For your Elvish phrase of the week. And I would just like to say thank you all so much for tuning in. I am Shane of the Woodland Realms. I am Jen of Rivendell. I'm Russell of the Shire. And we are the readers of Rawhead. So thank you so much for tuning in. Russell, you want to tell everybody where they can find us? Yeah, be sure to uh, like and, and subscribe. Um, send us your questions. You can do that via any of the social medias, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, we're also found the podcast itself on Stitcher. Uh, are we on SoundCloud? Not SoundCloud. Not SoundCloud. Uh, Stitcher, um, iTunes, mm-hmm. Google Podcasts. Mm-hmm. That's our latest. And I'm forgetting. Anchor. Breaker. Spotify. I forgot about Spotify. Uh, Radio Public. Stitcher. I think you already said that one. We're out there, man. You'll find us. And uh, we'll have a a dedicated website soon, too. Tell your friends. 
if you want to rock it old school and go go totally Tolkien and you know just just write us a letter, get out your quill <laughs> and your parchment, write In us L- a letter like like my boy J.R.R. did to uh, Milton Waldman, not Friedman, or Burl <laughs> or Bradley. <laughs> <laughs> you know the one with the uh, red stapler absolutely <laughs> yes thank you all so much for tuning in yes good night it's everyone. been a good journey <laughs> muster the rohirrim go find it